So it is great to see you all this morning, Mother's Day morning, 2022. I want to wish all of the moms, all of the grandmothers, all of the great-grandmothers, and in Albany, all of the great-great-grandmothers, a happy Mother's Day. I don't think I've ever met more people in their 90s than what I've met since being right here at Sherwood. So uh, there's some great longevity in southwest Georgia. So we are grateful to moms. We love you all. Thank you for all that you do. So today is not your traditional Mother's Day message, so to speak. We are in a series on marriage and discovering God's design for marriage, roles and responsibilities for husbands and wives in marriage, as well as biblical principles and truths as to how it is that God's word and following God's teachings enables us to have stronger marriages and stronger families. And today we are addressing God's instructions for wives as well as for husbands. Now let me pause here for just a moment. Since this morning, I have had multiple, multiple husbands and wives come in and say, man, you really got my wife this last week. And a number of husbands that said last week, Paul, I thought you were talking to wives, and I felt like I took as many hits as she did this last week. And anyway, I just want to let you know God's word uh, works people over equally. Uh, there are difficult teachings of Scripture for both husbands and well as wives, but it is an unbelievably important topic for us to discuss. And I want to take just a moment and let's set some things up. On the average day in America, 6,200 weddings take place. Couples will stand before God, before family and friends. They will exchange vows. They will go through and exchange rings. They will seal it with a kiss. And then they move forward to celebrate with friends and family. There's usually food and flowers and sometimes dancing and gifts. It seems like life is going to be absolutely perfect. And whenever that couple finishes the ceremony and they kiss, the last thing in their mind is, I really hope this works out. And yet, every day in this country, 2,400 marriages end in divorce. So while two couples are celebrating in churches, one couple is separating at the courthouse. In the United States, close to 45% of first marriages end in divorce. 60% of second marriages end in divorce. 73% of third marriages end in divorce. The struggle surrounding marriage has been so strong that there has been a steep incline in the number of marriage books and conferences, seminars and clinics, counselors, as well as marriage coaches. Uh, the task of building marriages and keeping couples together has now become a multi-billion dollar a year industry. Now, as discouraging as some of those statistics may sound, the reason we're actually studying marriage out of Ephesians 5 is to let people know there's hope. God has a plan. God has a design when it comes to marriage. And while nobody can go back and change things that maybe we've done wrong in our past, we can start from where we are today and by the grace of God move forwards towards a better marriage or towards a redemptive future in the future. Now, all of that can only happen, though, if we go back to the source. 
So whether or not you are just starting in marriage and you're looking for wisdom as to how it is that you live as a Christian married couple, or maybe you've been in marriage for a little time and you just got some questions, you're running into some things and you're like, I just don't know who to ask about this, or maybe you're at a point where you're experiencing some problems in marriage. All I can tell you is go to the source. Go back to God. Go back to his word. So far, we have seen God's basic design for marriage can be laid out in three simple words, leave, cleave, and weave. A common substitute for that design that leads people down the wrong path is add, separate, and protect. Last week, we established the context for all of these verses, and while establishing the context, we found the entire section talks about responsibilities, not rights. We began laying out God's instructions for wives. We also saw that God gave husbands the role as the spiritual head of the home, and he gave the wife the role as the helpmate of the husband. You found this last week that those roles are not about value or favoritism or sexism. They were about design and about order and about accountability. According to chapter 5, as we got into that last week, we found that both men and women are called to walk in agape love. Both men and women are called to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And both men and women are to take the selfless path of wisdom that best glorifies God. Today, we're going to go further in talking about God's instructions for wives as well as husbands. Some of this is going to be very specific to wives. Some will be very specific to husbands. And then some is going to be to spouses in general. But we got a lot that we're going to cover. So I invite you to go with me in your Bibles today. Ephesians chapter 5 will be in verses 25 through 33. I'm speaking this morning on the subject of God's instructions for wives and husbands. Let's read the text. We'll pray and go forward from there. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he may present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we get into this text, we are needing once again for your spirit to guide us into truth. We are praying, Lord, right now that you would help those who are at a place right now in marriage where they are wondering, is there any hope? God, fill them with hope and wisdom and direction this morning. God, for those who are wrestling over decisions they made in the past and things that they can't go back and change, Lord, we recognize in Scripture 
that it says that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That has been placed under the blood. We have been forgiven of sin. At this point, we move forward in the forgiveness we have in Christ. Lord, may you free people to enjoy the blessing that you have for marriage. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we established five contextual perimeters around these verses. In concentric circles, we moved from the book to the section, to the chapter, to the subject, and then finally into the verses. And when we got into chapter 5, I gave two big commands that are given for both men as well as women. And these commands are those that begin in verse number 2. The first one was, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. If you remember that love is perfect love, sacrificial love, unconditional love. That is a love that only God can generate. And both men and women are called to walk in that type of love. Also, we found that walking in that type of love is going to require us to take a selfless path of wisdom. And if people are wondering, well, what does that path look like? The Apostle Paul actually gave six examples from verse 15 to verse 21. The very last of those examples is our second command. In verse 21, it says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That is, willingly place the needs and the desires of others above yourself. Now, here's a key thought from last week and same key thought coming into this week. These general commands, the two that I just mentioned, are given to believers in chapter 5. They mirror the specific commands given to husbands and wives in marriage. Husbands are to love their wives even as Christ loved the church. Wives are to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. Now, I think sometimes that the first part of each of those verses becomes so shocking to people, we don't even read the second half of what those verses are actually saying. Paul did not say, be subject to your own husband when he deserves it because he's right, or if you agree with him. The command is be subject to your own husband as unto the Lord. The incentive for submission is based on Christ's position as Lord in your life. Husbands, notice what happens here as well. Paul did not say, husbands, love your wives when she shows you respect when she's acting lovable or up until the point she makes you mad. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. That, that is, there is a qualifying statement at the end of both of those specific commands. How husbands are to love their wives is based on how Christ loved the church. Now, you find the exact same type of a statement at the end of verse 2 as well as the end of verse 21. The general commands that we went over last week, I already mentioned again. Listen to them again. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Here's the point that needs to be made. We're called to relate to others just as Christ relates to us. That has to be kept in the forefront of our mind as we walk through these teachings on marriage. That is, God is the one who sets the standard. God doesn't say, love someone just however you want to love them. 
Instead, he says, walk in love just as Christ also loved the church. Our standard for loving others is Christ's standard in loving us. Does that make sense? Okay, now take those ideas into marriage. Part of God's divinely inspired plan for marriage is that marriage is a visible example of Christ in the church. Okay, we recognize that, clear in Scripture. So when people are trying to understand what unconditional love from God looks like, they should be able to look at the way a Christian husband is loving his wife and say, ah, that's what it looks like. When people are trying to understand what does submission to Christ look like, they should be able to look at a Christian wife and say, ah, that's how she is submitting to her husband. When people are trying to understand what does death to self, what does union with Christ look like, they should be able to look at a Christian marriage and say, that's what it looks like visibly being lived out before me. Our marriage is so much bigger than about our happiness. Your marriage is an ongoing billboard for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when you get into those moments and you're like, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Do I go forward? Is it worth it? It's worth it. There is a world that is watching. There is an example that is being displayed in our life of Christ in his church. Christian marriage is a microcosm of Christ in the church. Now go back into verse 25. We can clearly see that there is a standard for love. And this is so, so important. I don't know if you all have noticed it or not, but the world tends to change the definition of love based on the circumstances. We say things like, well, this is how you're loving, or that's not loving. When it comes to the Christian marriage, there is never a question as to what love looks like. The text very clearly says that husbands are to love their wives just as not similar to, not kind of like, just as Christ loves the church. So how exactly does Christ love the church? Well, this is by no means an exhaustive list, but it is going to be a way to get us started on thinking through how does Jesus love the church? That is, Jesus loved us when we were unlovable. He pursued us even when we were antagonistic towards him and sometimes hateful of him. He sacrificed everything for us, didn't give up on us, always has our best interest in mind. He didn't make us earn his love. He loves us with an unconditional acceptance. He pursues us with grace and mercy and with truth. He doesn't withhold his love until we do everything right, and when we mess up, He's always waiting. He doesn't load us up with unrealistic expectations, but rather he says, be with me, abide in me, rest in me. That's just a quick description of how it is that Christ loves us. And the Apostle Paul says, husbands, love your wives like that. How's the world going to see Christ in your marriage when you love your wife like that? Now, as I shared this last week, when you look at that list and you recognize agape love is only a love that God can manifest, 
You might be saying, that's a daunting task. I can never do it. And you're absolutely correct. You and I cannot do that in our strength. But rather, as we submit to God, as we abide in Christ, he lives through us as us to accomplish what we could never do ourselves. And the glory will always go back to him. So, as we get into this text, and as you're seeing that basic framework in play, let me ask this question. How does God's standard of love differ from the world's standard of love when it comes to marriage? What I'm about to share over the next 10 minutes easily can account for 50 to 75% of the arguments and the problems that happen in marriage. If people understand what I'm about to walk them through, they will be able to pinpoint in their lives where it is that a lot of arguments are coming from. How many of you feel like that would be a good investment of our time if we can do something to help people recognize the problem and address the problem to strengthen the marriage? Okay, so here's what happens in this. When people enter marriage, it is only natural for them to dream and plan and have desires for the future. And every couple's gonna have things a little bit differently depending on their life and where they live and, and what it is that they want. But just to kind of let you know what that sometimes looks like, and you might even be able to identify with a few of these. Here's what it looks like, usually in the dating stage or in the engaged stage. A couple's having dinner together, they're talking, and they'll say, wouldn't it be great if maybe we don't start our family until like three years after marriage? That way we can grow together as a couple and we can take some trips together, get established in our careers, and then we can start a family. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Yeah, that'd be great. Or somebody else might say, wouldn't it be neat one day if we get a chance to live in Memphis or New York or Hawaii? Yeah, Hawaii's great. That's a great place to live. And they start talking about, man, we can plan this and we can work towards that. We got family and I got friends that are over here. Or somebody might say, wouldn't it be neat maybe if we live in a, in a big city? Big cities got great amenities. And all of a sudden they think like, oh, nope, not a lot of yards for the kids in the cities. Wouldn't it be great if we live like maybe 15 minutes outside of a big city? That way we got a yard for our kids to play in and we can enjoy the amenities of being in the city. Like, yeah, that'd be wonderful. We need to do that. And then somebody else might say, when we get married, I can't wait for us to just come home from work, make dinner together as a couple, talk, then maybe fall asleep watching TV. That just sounds relaxing to me. Life is going to be great. Or when I was growing up, we had this big, beautiful home. And I know we can't afford that right now, but somewhere down the road, I'd love for us to have a home like that that our kids can build memories in and one day our grandkids can come to and it's kind of like a family heritage. That's going to be beautiful. And the other, the other one's like, yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. I want us to build memories as well. Or speaking about getting settled in, and we can only do that later on, hey, wouldn't it be great somewhere down the road to get a boat? I've always wanted a boat. Oh, or a beach house. Beach houses are awesome. Or, hey, I've always liked this certain type of car, but I've never been able to afford it. So somewhere, maybe seven, ten years down the road, I'd love to get that type of a car. Or, hey, you know, 
it'd be great if we continued our education. For me, it's going to be about two years to work on my master's, and that'll be done. That'll be behind us. So, you know, we'll give it a year of marriage, and then afterwards, we're going to work on our master's. I'll knock that out, and it's going to help in the career. And all of a sudden, the couple's just dreaming, and they're talking, and they're planning. Listen, nothing wrong with any of that. Keep it up. That's natural. That's good. That's great. But something changes along the way. Due to unexpected obstacles in life, due to sometimes the reality of what marriage actually is beginning to set in, sometimes due to selfishness of individuals or maybe impatience of individuals, here's what happens. Somewhere along the way, after we say, I do, all of those dreams, hopes, desires, and plans move from wouldn't it be neat to this is what I now expect. When that shift happens, a couple begins to have many issues that come into their marriage. Here's what's taking place. We go from our hopes to my expectations. The conversation changes from let's dream together to it's time for you to keep your promises. And when that happens, we're no longer looking at our spouse through the lens of perfect, unconditional, sacrificial love. We look at our spouse through the lens of unfulfilled expectations. And we begin to treat them based on how well they are living up to or how poorly they are acting upon our list of expectations. You know what that happens as well? Even when one of those pieces is checked off the list, you can't fully celebrate because you're like, well, you're just doing what you're supposed to do. You see how quickly the dreams and the plans and the hopes can change if they shift from let's dream together to now this is my list of expectations. When that happens, it's amazing how quick our our verbiage, our conversation changes and how animosity begins to grow in a person's heart. And you can recognize it sometimes in our comments. That is, we talked about this being a starter home. When are we going to move to that bigger house? You said your degree was going to take two years. It's already been three. What's the problem on this? You knew I wanted to start a family at year number three. It's now year number five. Why aren't we moving forward? You understood that I wanted us to have dinner together and for us to talk and to take a walk, and you don't even get home until 7, 7.30 in the evening. This isn't what we talked about. This isn't what we planned for. This isn't what we were supposed to be about. This is not what I expected. Do you see how quickly the enemy can use something beautiful like hoping and dreaming and planning? to set seeds of entitlement and selfishness, and it's all about me. And all of a sudden, the wedge comes. Here, here's what I am not telling you to do. I am not saying don't dream with your spouse. I'm not saying don't plan with your spouse. What I am saying is when those dreams become expectations and they drive a wedge in your relationship, if you don't recognize it, the enemy will exploit the crack that he just put into your marriage. Okay, here's the other part of that. When that happens, the marriage covenant has now been replaced with a management contract. 
I will do this for you if you do this for me. You keep your part of the agreement, and I'll keep my part of the agreement. Do you know what that's called? A debt-debtor relationship. When a couple is bound up in a debt-debtor relationship, it will destroy the intimacy of their marriage. I want you to reflect for just a moment. Hold that idea and let's switch gears because remember, the husband and the wife, Christian marriage, is to be a microcosm, a reflection of Christ and his church. So now I want you to think for just a moment about your relationship with Christ. Do you know why we can experience intimacy with Christ? It's because he forgave our sin debt. He wiped the sin debt clean. He doesn't lift or put a bunch of expectations and unrealistic ideas on top of us. In fact, Jesus even challenged the Pharisees because they were heaping all of these things on people. And he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus doesn't withhold his goodness and his mercy from us when we mess up. He doesn't rub our face in every mistake that we make. Believers have been set free by Christ. That's why we get a chance to enjoy intimacy. So here's your key truth for the morning. Intimacy grows in grace, but it is stifled in expectations. Now somebody might say, Paul, am I just supposed to give up on everything? Like I had plans, I had dreams, I, I desires, and if I don't fight for it, it's not going to happen. I, I understand the tension. I really do. There is nothing wrong with having and pursuing desires and plans. Nothing wrong with talking lovingly, graciously, talking with your spouse about how it is that you all can continue to pursue those desires and plans. But whenever that becomes expectations that drives a wedge into the marriage, it will destroy intimacy and it undercuts the future of your marriage. You may get the house in the country you always wanted. You just might not have your spouse with you to enjoy it. You might be able to get the dream job. You might be able to get the same number of kids you always planned for. You might be able to afford every trinket, every gizmo, every toy on the face of the earth. But if you lose your spouse in the process, is it worth it? If you get, if you get everything you want and there's no one there to enjoy it with, is it worth it? But Paul, he owes me this. But Paul, I'd given in before and she took advantage of me in that situation. Or we agreed upon, or our plan was, or we've always talked about, listen, I'm not saying it's easy. But I do have two questions to hopefully give perspective at this moment. Question number one. Are these instructions written from the perspective of responsibilities or rights? Responsibilities. If you make marriage about what you deserve, what you can get, and how it's going to benefit you, that is not Christian marriage. Now here's our second question. Aren't you glad God doesn't treat you this way? Remember, if it's to reflect Christ in the church, 
What if God collected all of our well-intended promises and plans and commitments that we've made before him, and he held those over us before we stepped forward? You're like, well, Paul, I've never done anything like that. Probably you did. We just don't think about it in the moment. So I'm going to throw out a couple of examples. God, I will read my Bible every day if you give me this job. God, starting tomorrow, I'm going to stop doing this, and I'm going to start doing that. God, my plan is to get settled into my career first, and then I'll get more involved back in church again. God, I know I've not been faithful with my money, but if you get me out of this bind, I'll start tithing. How many times as believers do we make commitments and promises before God. Could you imagine for just a moment if God had that whole list and every time we came before him, he's like, we got to talk about the list first. (laughs) Do you remember back in 1982, you told me this. Now, are you going to keep that? How many of you would want to sit in his presence if every time you got in his presence, he pulled out the list and says, this is what I now expect from you because this is what you've already promised me. You talking about one of those uncomfortable things? Praise God there is grace in his presence. Praise God every foolish thing we say in that moment right there. And it's not that we're trying to be mischievous or devious or lying. It's in the moment we, we mean it. We really mean it. But the issue is people are not perfect, nor is your spouse. And when you try to hold them to something that happened here and you try to say, but we said life has a way of changing. The issue is not Do you give up on hopes and plans and dreams? The issue is how in grace do we walk forward with our spouse? How do we take a selfless path of wisdom so that when you get to where you want to be, your spouse is still there with you and you've taken the journey together and you've enjoyed what it is that God has done for you? Now somebody might say, but Paul, what if I'm willing to do this but my spouse isn't? Let me pause here. The way individual couples work through things is always going to be different. The specific circumstances are going to be different. So there's no way I could give advice or teach in one way that's going to solve it everywhere for every couple. But I can give you two general pieces. If you have a desire to go that direction and your spouse is not there yet, here's two general things that you can do. Number one. I need you to remember, you cannot force your spouse into lasting change. God has to be the one to do it. God has to be the one to turn the heart. God has to be the one. What you can do is you can pray, faithfully pray, that God brings the change that's needed. The second thing is do what God told you to do. Ephesians 5 is written from the perspective of responsibilities, not rights. Do what God told you to do. Well, how long is that going to take, Paul? I I don't know. I don't. It could be that God changes things in a day. It could be that it takes months. It could be that it takes years. And let me go beyond that. 
It might be that your spouse never changes. Then what's the point? The point is, if you have a desire to see God most glorified in your marriage, if that is your desire, this is the only option that we have. This is it. There's not a plan B on that. Our desire in this is to say, God, even if my spouse might not be in that same place, I want to walk faithfully with you. I want to love them. I want to serve them. I want to treat them the way your word tells me to do. And God, I'm going to pray and I'm going to leave it in your hands. When you've done that, you're now in a place that you can say, I've done everything I possibly know to do. It's God who is the one who has to bring the change. So next week, if anybody's back, (laughs) we are going to finish and we're going to address God's instructions for husbands. We're going to get into five specific ways in this section that Jesus loves the church. As husbands lead in the area of unconditional love, it is something that allows intimacy to stay strong and for God to protect a marriage and keep it on the right path. So as we close, I've got two questions for people to reflect about, and each of these have been personalized. Question number one, have my dreams, desires, and plans become a list of expectations for my spouse? Has expectation destroyed intimacy? Start by asking God that question. Ask God. You all know when God speaks into your heart, God can say things to you in private that if your spouse were to say, it would immediately lead to a fight. If you start and let God work in those pieces, that's the best area. But then afterwards, talk to your spouse. Ask them, do you believe I've got expectations we've placed or I've placed on you? Let them begin to share. As long as the conversation is coming and bringing truth out and a Each couple is saying, we're going to pray and we want to move towards God's best. God has a way of being able to deal with issues and address them in a redemptive manner as opposed to them sitting under the surface. Let me pause here for just a second and say this. The enemy exploits vulnerable moments in things that have been left untouched. What I mean by that is if you're in a good place generally in your marriage and you have the conversation, now is the time to have it. Do you know when the enemy is going to bring that up? When you're already hurting and in a fight. And in that moment, all of a sudden, emotions are kicking in and people are getting upset with each other. And things are said in the heat of the moment that if you take the time to do it in advance, God has a way of walking you through it in grace. You wait until later on, the enemy's going to use that against you. Those things that are left unsaid and untouched don't go away. They just come up at an inopportune time. Intimacy grows in grace, but it's stifled in expectations. Here's the next one. If marriage is a microcosm of Christ in his church, what is currently getting in the way of the world seeing Christ in my marriage? Are there habits or attitudes that are blurring people's view of Christ? Have expectations or critical words or demeaning comments made it difficult for believers to even know I've got a Christian marriage? Has jealousy or pettiness or selfishness or anything else 
interfered with the world seeing Christ in you? Those are probing questions. They're uncomfortable questions. I, I get that. But when believers are willing to do the work, the hard work in private with God, God has a way of working things out in a way that he's most glorified. If we don't touch it, remember, it doesn't go away. It's just going to come back and bite us at the wrong time, at the inopportune time. Now's the time to address those things. So if you're in that place and you're saying, God, I don't know how I can do that. Remember, it's not about you doing it for him. It's about him living his truths through us. God has a plan that always leads to his glory. And a part of that is in marriage. I'm going to ask you if you would, bow with me for prayer for just a moment. His heads bowed, eyes closed for just a moment. We are going to open up the end of the service, the invitation time, just encouraging people to respond as God has prompted them. When you've got this many people in a room right here, there's a lot of veteran marriages out there. There's a lot of couples that are engaged to be married. And the question many times is, like, what will others think of me if I were to say something? Or maybe if I were to take my spouse by the hand and, and maybe go forward and pray, will they think I've got problems? Or Listen, that's not the concern here. Everybody has opportunities that they can pray and spend time before God. Marriages can always get stronger. So the altar is going to be open. Our pastors are going to be taking their places. There's also going to be a number of the pastor's wives that are standing with them. It might be that you just want somebody to come in to pray with you. It might be that you have been listening now for a while and, and you keep hearing me talk about it's not you doing it, but God doing it through you. And that makes no sense to you. And maybe you've got questions. Maybe you're new into a church and you're like, I don't know how all this starts, but it seems like you all focus a lot on Jesus. And if that's the case, come and talk to someone. We would love to tell you how it is that Jesus can radically change a person's life. Wherever it is that God might be working in your heart, we just simply ask that you would respond to him. I'm going to have a word of prayer, and then we're going to sing a song of invitation, and the altar will be open. The invitation is open. Respond as God leads you. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for the beauty of Christian marriage. We're asking God today that you would strengthen marriages and strengthen families. We're thanking you, God, today that there's so many wonderful Christian examples of those who have been married 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, and more that's all around us. And God, we thank you for faithfulness as how they've lived their lives before others. God, may you raise up a new generation of those that'll hit the 50 and 60 and 70 year mark in the future. Lord, we're asking for your favor over marriages and family. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing and the invitation time is open.